Second Peter chapter three verses one through nine on fruit inspectors. This is part six, and these are doubters. And it says here in chapter three verse one, beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stirred up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come into the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? And for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of the ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. There are a few things Peter's reminding us of in these passages. And the first is the return of Jesus a second time to this earth. And also God's judgment that's going to come upon this world for the reason of man's sin and rebellion against him. The warning of this judgment was just echoing the teaching of the false prophets. It wasn't a new revelation given to the church. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Joel, Amos, and Zephaniah all spoke and taught of a coming judgment upon this world. Jesus spoke of this coming judgment just a few days, a week before his crucifixion. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, he would spend the day there teaching at the temple. But he did not, he did not spend the night in Jerusalem. He went out and climbed up the steep slope of the Mount of Olives, reached the top, and a couple miles from there was a city called Bethany, where him and his disciples would spend the night. It was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his very close and good friends. And when Jesus went into the temple area in the daytime, all the different religious sects would try to discredit him while he was teaching. Each group would approach him and try to shoot holes into his credibility. Of course, each one fell. But Jesus began to lament over the condition of this nation that was being led by these religious leaders who were totally rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. And his, his lamentation went like this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks under her wing. But you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned, desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus speaks of the coming destruction of the temple where he says, Look, your house is abandoned and desolate. And after that, then Jesus leaves the temple area and makes his way back to Bethany. And there on the Mount of Olives was a great view of the whole temple area. And so they were climbing up the Mount of Olives. And I would imagine that there was a pause in their climb to rest and relax. Matter of fact, in chapter 24, it did say he was sitting down with them. And as they sat on the slopes, they would be facing the temple and its magnificence. And Jesus' disciples must have had, or must have been thinking about what Jesus said in lamenting over Jerusalem about the Jewish leader's house be left to them abandoned and desolate. And as they're looking at this splendor resting on the Mount of Olives, they make comment to Jesus about the wonderful, magnificent buildings of the temple as all of them are looking upon them at that time. Because in the minds of the disciples, it was impossible that the temple would ever be destroyed. But, you know, the thing is, is that I'm sure it was in the minds of all the people except Jesus. He was telling a very near future of the temple. The house will be desolate. You have to understand the size of the temple, the scope of the temple. Even the builder 
of the temple was Herod the Great. It was one of the it was one of the wonders of the world at that particular time. And Josephus, a historian, said that the foundational stones that that they would put up they they made would actually be forty feet long, twelve feet wide, and twenty feet tall. Some of these stones. This was just one chunk of stone from the quarry, and it's been estimated to weigh 165,000 tons, just this one stone. So we have to understand the disciples are pointing out to Jesus the greatness of these stones and structure. It was the disciples' polite way of allowing Jesus kind of maybe to backtrack on what he just said to the religious leaders about being desolate and destroyed and abandoned this temple. But no doubt something Jesus needs to rethink in light of what we are actually seeing, and we're drawing his attention to looking at him too. There's no way it could be destroyed. Even if it could, who on earth would want to do it? I mean, if someone came in and conquered Israel, why in the world would they ever want to destroy the building that they, you know, they can bring it just to another use? It would never make sense to destroy something that spectacular. You conquer them, now you get to keep it, and you get to use it. So understand, this is all going through the disciples' mind. No way this will be destroyed. And that's what I was thinking. But then Jesus says, and he responded to them, pointing out you know, the greatness of these buildings. And his response was, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth. They will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of the other. Not only does Jesus double down on his first prediction, but he goes even further to make it even more unlikely that it can ever happen. And he draws their attention to those massive stones and says, not one of these massive stones will, be, will remain on the other. This place is going to be so destroyed that you guys will even never, or nobody will never even know uh, even a glimmer of what it was at one time. And that's exactly what happened in 70 A.D., just a little less than 40 years after Jesus' declaration when the Roman soldier Titus, who was sent from, to Jerusalem by order of Rome to seize it from the Jews because of the revolt the Jews had against Rome. And after a long siege, the Romans in, on the city, in the city of Jerusalem, which included many, many bloodbaths, and there was embittered men on both sides. And when it came apparent that victory was inevitable and they were going to seize Jerusalem, Titus did not want the temple destroyed. He didn't even want to defile the temple. But they were about to come through the walls of the city and it would be a terrible slaughter of Jewish people in Jerusalem. So Titus offered the Jews to surrender on the inevitable, but they refused. He even offered for them to come out of the city and fight so the city would not be destroyed, but they refused both options. So when they go in, it was a bloodbath. And Josephus said over one million Jews were slaughtered, not counting the number of Roman soldiers who were killed. But somehow the temple caught on fire. And tradition says that the Roman soldiers saw some Jews running to the temple to get away, and the soldiers threw in a torch to smoke them out or burn them out of the temple. They didn't want to go in and defile it, as their general said, so they just threw a torch in to smoke them out. But it's just speculation on all that anyway. But for sure, what we do know is that the temple did catch on fire. And understand, in the construction of the temple, inside was gold overlaid on the stones and the wood. And as that fire intensified, the gold began to melt down into the cracks and the seams between each one of those massive stones. And it was understood that soldiers who conquered the enemy were allowed to get the spoils. So they toppled each single stone so to get the gold between them. So just as Jesus said... Not one stone was left on top of another. And then from there, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus went on to talk about not only the temple's total destruction, but also delivers the disciples things concerning his second coming and the end of the age. And basically that was 
true of the ancient Jewish temple, but it's going to be true of the whole wide world too. That this world will come to a destruction just like the temple. Yet just like the temple, we look at the world and in its appearance and we believe it will just keep going on as normal. Yet understand this world and this temple were built upon the same rebellion. That's the rebellion of rejecting the Son of God, which is Jesus Christ. So folks, the reality is that human history is slowly marching to an end. It's not just any kind of an end. It's a God-appointed end. And understand that Jesus is not going to allow man's rebellion against God to continue on forever. No, he will come and he will put an end to it. And then he will establish his rule and his kingdom on earth. And the government of God will be in effect for over for 1,000 years. Yet in spite of this confidence and the coming destruction and judgment of this world by Jesus and him setting up his millennial reign, the world looks upon this and scoffs. Verse 3 says that means to mock and to ridicule. A scoffer is someone who takes things lightly, who should be taking them very seriously. And that's true of anyone who scoffs at the word of God and the promises of God himself. So these mockingbirds ask, where is the promise of his coming? That this so-called promise from the time of the beginning, since our fathers have fallen asleep, things have just continued on as they always have continued on from the beginning. To them, there's just no God. There's no evidence of God. There's no evidence of God intervening in human history under any circumstances, much less under the circumstance of judgment. All we see in life instead of God is the laws of nature unfold day by day as they always have, and because of that, we can live any way that we want to and not be concerned for a future judgment. And also it says in verse 4-2, along with that, because since the fathers have fallen asleep from the beginning... What happens is they, they fail to recognize that God at one time interrupted human history. They thought this has always happened from the very beginning. I mean, they think, yeah, sure, life goes on and continues on day in and day out, and, and everything is just the same. But there was that time that God interrupted the laws of nature. God interrupted human history. It was all for the judgment's sake of wickedness, and they ignore or forgot the flood upon the earth. The thing is this, if God did it once, he certainly can do it again. We have history of the fact that God did do it once, and history does repeat itself, and it will. Yet, not because of that, though, but because God has promised he will do it again. Peter also speaks about with these scoffers that ask, well, why is he so long in his coming? And Peter gives us the answer is why he's so long in his coming. He goes, haven't you heard from people that are Christians that talk about Jesus and is coming back again? And many people said, people have been saying this for 2,000 years. He's going to be coming back soon. What makes you think you're right now and they, others were wrong back then? My grandparents used to talk about Jesus coming soon. If he was coming back, there's no doubt he would have been back by now. So why so long in his coming? And this is what Peter does. Peter gives us a couple of answers. Number one is this, God measures time much different than we do, as Peter quotes from Psalm 94, 90, uh, verse 4. For you, a thousand years are a passing day, as brief as a few night hours. Peter was quoting from that, though he rephrased it somewhat, where he said a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day to the Lord. It's still from the same psalm. In other words, God does not operate in time in the way you and I do. So here we are. It's been 2,000 years since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're thinking 2,000 years, it's a long time. But to God, it's only 
two days. It's just a weekend. What Peter is saying, time with God is not a bigger concern for him, you know, as, as it is with us. What God is concerned with is salvation of man, the salvation of his children. In verses 8 and 9, it goes on to say that he, the second thing is he delays his coming, not because he has lost interest in the world or he doesn't care or he lacks really the power to do anything about it. No, he delays because of his long-suffering and patience, not willing that none should perish, but all would come to repentance. So it's not slackness on God's part. It's just love for many as can be saved to be saved. If you are not a Christian, understand it's for you his delays in coming back to judge the world. You're the reason why he's taking so long to come back. Because Paul talks about the fullness of the Gentiles has to come in, which is in Romans 11. And when the last Gentile gets saved, just prior to him coming for the church and in the rapture, so it's not about time. It's not about God being slack. It's about the fullness of those who will be saved. Whoever the last Gentile is, then God will rapture the church and then his judgment will begin. And sure, there will be those who will be saved in the tribulation period. The reason we're sitting in this room today is because the last person has not yet come to Christ. God is long-suffering. He's waiting patiently. And so here it is. It's this. He's, he is willing that none should perish, but all come to repentance and have eternal life. God's will is that none should perish. He's patiently waiting to save people, to save you, to save us all, and give us all eternal life with him. That is the ultimate will of God for your life.